Hello, welcome to Taking the Universe Around the World. I'm Robin Ince and this I think is episode 7. These are my diaries from travelling around the world with Professor Brian Cox on the Horizons tour in which he explains the nature and understanding of black holes and what we may well eventually understand about black holes and what that will then tell us about the universe. And uh, I do a poem and uh, some jokes and some voices. That's roughly what happens. So far, we've done half of the Canadian and US leg and... uh, I am now, I'm doing this from a hotel room actually in Edmonton where I've been now for a week because uh, unfortunately I picked up a viral infection and for the first time that I can really remember I've uh, I've had to, well basically I've been on instructions uh, not to do the gigs and so everyone else has gone off to Vancouver, one of my favourite cities with many of my favourite bookshops and my favourite views and all of the other favourite things. And uh, I'm still in a hotel room in Edmonton. But the people are, are very nice. I mean, the ones that I can see out of the window. Uh, there are quite a lot of boy racers on a Saturday night. But anyway, that's not where I am in the diaries. That's where I am as I'm speaking to you. But actually in the diaries, I'm still in Chicago It's Tuesday in Chicago, and my Tuesday in Chicago, I thought I'd start, well, it's always a good idea to walk in the footsteps of Billy Connolly's curiosity, because like most of those I admire, he combines insatiable fascination with the world with also a voracious reading habit. It's thanks to him that I also know about the Chicago Tribune building, which is peppered with brick and stone samples from other buildings around the world and across time, in between its own masonry. In fact, really embedded within its own brickwork, you will find, for instance, a gargoyle from Westminster Abbey. In fact, I will stop myself there, actually, because I'm not sure it is a gargoyle, because I think a gargoyle has to have an open mouth and some kind of drainage system going through it, possibly. Not entirely sure. So this is, if it's not a gargoyle, then let's just consider it to be a stone homunculus. So that is within one brick. There's a piece of Kentucky's Mammoth Cave. Uh, There's a lump of Sybil's Cave, a stone from Omaha Beach, and much more besides. It is a museum of the geology of human civilization. Connolly's favourite piece is from Missouri, Mark Twain's Injun Joe Cave. And the oldest piece I could find is from the Great Pyramid of Geyser, 2600 BC. According to Connolly, the instruction to Chicago Tribune staff was, when they were travelling the world, to collect pieces of famous buildings by well-mannered means. But as Connolly wonders, just how well-mannered are you when you're taking a piece of a pyramid or a cathedral? Excuse me, I hope you don't mind. Also, I should mention, I was saying he was a voracious reader and I'm sure you'll have seen on the documentaries where he wanders around bookshops. One of my favourite things is, uh, as well as wandering around bookshops myself, is to see other people wandering around bookshops. And he is an enormous fan of John Kennedy O'Toole's A Confederacy of Dunces, which is uh, an excellent book to be one that he buys over and over again for other people. I would also highly recommend The Neon Bible, which was, I'm sure most of you will know the story of John Kennedy O'Toole, so I won't go through it all again. It was a short and sad life, and the book was, uh, his first, the novel A Confederacy of Dunces was not published in his lifetime. It was by his mother's relentless campaigning. But the other one as well, The Neon Bible, I really enjoy it as well. So it's, it's a much shorter book. It's almost a novella. Um, and uh, it was also turned into a movie, as far as I remember, by Terence Davis. Worth, worth digging out.
Anyway, as I was looking around at these remarkable embedded pieces, I'm reminded of a far more awful desecration of a sacred building. More often than not, sacredness comes from the beauty or the strangeness or the myth that is embedded in a building or an object. But sometimes there is a dark sacredness, the sacredness where something symbolises the very worst drives and ambitions of human beings, something that must not be forgotten. Fred A. Lupter was a manufacturer of execution equipment. I found out about him after watching a documentary by Errol Morris, Mr Death. There was a peculiar humanity in some of Fred's work. Many of the electric chairs in US prisons were built by word of mouth. Like the telephone game, all of these different sketches and verbal notes meant that perhaps each chair that was built was a little less effective than the previous chair and each execution was more agonisingly prolonged. So Fred A. Lukter would make more effective chairs to kill people quicker. This is why he was employed by the Holocaust denier Ernst Zundel as an expert on execution. In fact, he used a report he'd commissioned by Lukter in his defence. To build up his case against genocide, Fred A. Lukter went to Auschwitz, where, inside one of the remaining gas chambers, he chipped away at the brickwork. According to Lukter, the brickwork showed a very low level of cyanide. His scientific method, though, was later debunked. Cyanide is not absorbed into the brickwork, but merely leaves a thin residue on the surface. So take a lump of brick, crush it and use it as your sample, and you will get the pseudoscientific result that will allow you to be a contended denier of the Holocaust. It will appear there was a very low amount of cyanide because most of that brick has no cyanide within it. Anyway, it's a dark story. I highly recommend you watch Mr Death. This guy, Joe, asked me if I knew what Fred did for a living, and I said no, and he said he kills people. And that kind of surprised me until he explained exactly what he did. Which wasn't that he killed people, but he made things that killed people. One of the things that worries me most is when you look at Fred A. Lukter, I'm, I'm not sure how much he really wanted to believe any of those things as much as he really enjoyed being the centre of attention and how easy it is that once you become the centre of attention you can then believe very very strange things for your ego. Anyway please watch it if you can. As the holocaust of World War II grows even further away and there are fewer witnesses left I fear that more people will casually approach a position of denial. There's a haze over the lake today. The sky and the lake are as one. After walking for a while in the dense air, I text Steph and Brian to announce that I will not be doing any outside exercise beyond walking and admiring the architecture and the steel girders of the city. Today is a gym day, not an outside day. Even Brian, always the cheerleader for driving us to improbable heart rates, is aching today. On this rarer occasion, he even decides against a third round of weights. After all, the slightest aneurysm could wipe his brain clean of knowledge of Hawking radiation, and we just can't take that risk. I spent much of the rest of the day at the Chicago Cultural Centre, 
It's a building of incredible beauty and it celebrates creativity through quotations and mosaics and a wonderful domed room in which light pours into and it inspires people in many languages from ceiling to floor and from hieroglyphics onwards. There is so much to learn from this building and within this building, both ancient and modern. I start off on the ground floor with a small exhibition about Bronzeville, a black community of Chicago who were intentionally displaced for the purpose of profit. The artist Isabel Strauss then uses found images to tell some of the story of this erasure. Further on, I get to an instrument in the shape of a woman, an exhibition of the work of Leslie Baum, Diane Christensen and Selina Trepp. With the beautiful colour and provocative forms, the artists in this exhibition suggest an alternate universe, at once familiar and surreal, seen through the prism of their invention. These artists capture my imagination immediately, and the title of the exhibition is taken from an Adrienne Rich poem. I am an instrument in the shape of a woman, trying to translate pulsations into images for the relief of the body and the reconstruction of the mind. I walk up to the dome, a popular place to get married, and look at the mosaics of those celebrated writers that adorn the arches, Voltaire, Galileo, Cervantes, Dante. Milton is quoted high on the wall. A good book is the precious lifeblood of a master spirit embalmed and treasured upon purpose to a life beyond life. The underlying message of much that surrounds me seems to say, read as if your life depends upon it, because maybe it does. The Robert Colescott exhibition is also revelatory. I knew nothing of him, but I'm absolutely enraptured by his reimagining of San Sebastian. The body of the Catholic saint has become a perfectly bifurcated hermaphrodite. Black, male, white, female, shot through with arrows is how it is described. I'm also increasingly fascinated by all of those steel and iron structures that I mentioned before that weave through Chicago supporting the railway. I find myself constantly tipping my camera up to this underside of the city. It reminds me of the joy of seeing the labels of the foundries that provided the steel for the Lovell telescope. Next time you're there, perhaps in fact when you're at the Blue Dot Festival, just see if you can get close enough just to see at the base these wonderful plates, most of the foundries sadly long gone. Over a lunchish dinner, or a dinnerish lunch, it's 4.30pm, Brian becomes perturbed by vegetable plurals while perusing his asparagus. As far as we know, the plural of asparagus is not asparagi. Asparagus always seems to be a collective rather than a lonely single spear. Composer Mike Batt explains that a single ravioli is a raviolo. Eric Idle decides that asparagi should be the plural, and then Peter Shaw explains all. As all language, it depends on one, linguistic contingency and convention, MB, broccoli comes from the Italian plural, asparagus from a Greek singular. If you are talking stroke thinking of an uncountable mass or individual units, sprigs. So there we go, that's the kind of thing where you find out the social media can be very, very useful. 
After the show, we return to the hotel and drink with Keith and Lynette Semple and Gary Sherman, the director of the horror movie masterpiece Deathline, named by the BFI as one of the top ten British movies made by an American director. I'm sure you will have heard me talk about it many times before. Mind the doors, mind the doors. A fantastic performance. The, uh, the, 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 the cannibal creature that we meet is one that is a, a, a truly piteous creature. And the, I, I put up that performance, I would put it there, with, with Boris Karloff in uh, both Frankensteiner and Bride of Frankenstein. Gary started his life in Chicago. And obviously it's the place that he feels most at home in. He tells us about his father, a haberdasher, who had a store in the hotel that we're staying in and sitting in right now. His father was a man who believed in the fight for civil rights. When Gary was young, his dad asked him if he would like to meet Nat King Cole, as he had to fit him. Young Gary then went on a walk through the increasingly insalubrious streets of Chicago, eventually entering a hotel that was barely more than a flop house. Gary said to his dad, but I thought you were taking me to see Nat King Cole. His dad went on his knees and told him that racial inequality meant black people were segregated, that a man as famous as Nat King Cole still couldn't stay in the fancy hotels. That lesson, one of many his father taught him, has remained with Gary always. He also told us about how he was a backing singer at Chess Records and that the Yardbirds' fear of Bo Diddley led to him working with Jeff Beck. Meanwhile, Keith Semple taught us when not to stage dive. On Wednesday morning, I wake up thinking about Corky Siegel. According to Gary Sherman, he is the greatest blues harmonica player in the world. And beyond that, he's combined classical music with the blues with his outfit, Chamber Blues. So I start the day watching a blues symphony from 1971. It's a staring out of the window day as we're travelling from Chicago to Madison. Steph and Brian opt out of staring out of the window. Having been up for two hours, they decide it's time to go to bed again. I contentedly look at the flatlands as I listen to Polyphonic Spree and Carl Orff. Lee tells me about Stanley Love, a New York experimental choreographer. Sadly, he was only 49 when he died. I like the sound of him and go into another cultural whirlpool. I read a quote. Someone who dances is a dancer. All you have to do to dance is dance. It's that simple. You don't have to have a degree. You don't need permission. All you have to do is dance. Period. That's dancing. Dancing is dancing. We don't have long in Madison, and it's hot enough to wear a sarong. But I don't. Steph and Brian wake up like children in an enchanted wood and declare they'll go and punch near the water. Then they walk out of the door and decide it really is too hot. Plus, their sarongs curb their upper thrusts and double jabs. I walk into the city, past all the frat houses, 
It's graduation time, so the front yards look just how I'd expect them to look, having been brought up on frat comedies that weighed down the video rental shelves from Animal House to Revenge of the Nerds via Screwballs and The Party Animal. Post-Animal House... They almost always disappointed, but of course the promise of an extraneous brief scene of female nudity vastly over-exaggerated on the cover art meant that this was a lucrative market, especially the lucrative scared virgin market that just kept on renting them. The party animal does have the advantage of a soundtrack from IRS Records, which means that you have songs from R.E.M. Uh, in fact, very early R.E.M. It might have been the first time that I ever heard Radio Free Europe. And there's also a lot of buzzcocks on the soundtrack, so it's not all bad. And it also has this scene that for some reason is in black and white, and I have no idea if this is the same reason that Lindsay Anderson had to do some scenes in black and white just because he'd run out of money, or whether it was the artistry of the making of the party animal. But this monochromatic scene is basically two sex shop workers debating the nuclear arms build-up using various different dildos and vibrators. Reviewers at the time considered this a moment that elevated the film. The lawns outside the frat houses have upturned tables, crushed beer cans. Under one table it just says, quite simply, Drew sucks cock. Cans are spread across the lawns like dying tulips. I walk down State Street. It looks like the kind of set that will be created somewhere where foreign spies were trained into how to fit into the world of five guys named Mo and Taco Bell while infiltrating the government. Near the end of the street, I find Paul's Bookstore, a lovely second-hand bookshop which is playing Julie London jazz and with collages of postcards and book reviews and other pictorial ephemera glued to the sides of all the shelves. It is too late for more books. I really have too many. I'm still leaving books behind in hotel drawers. Hunter S. Thompson wrote that he was glad that there was always a Bible in a hotel drawer because it meant he could always find a good quote of damnation, sin or retribution when filing copy to Rolling Stone. The first two books in the first two hotel drawers were Shame the Devil and an anthology of true stories from the moth. There are a few shelves of antiquarian books spread through the shop and I do carefully scrutinise these, just in case my Holy Grail book, The Perishingly Difficult to Locate, Practically True by Ernest Thesiger, is amongst them. Today, it's not. There are two temptations that I have. One by Buckminster Fuller, and one about him. But I recall the weight of the bags as I brought them off the tour bus this morning, and I have a rare moment of good judgement. The bookshop I really wanted to go to was A Room of One's Own, a local independent feminist bookshop named after Virginia Woolf's celebrated essay. The older I've become, the more I've realised the importance of space and quiet, an ability not to be tied to an unfairly distributed routine of chores or to poverty, or to poverty that means there is no space and no time to allow your mind to roam and then collate all of that roaming and turn it into poetry, or essays, or art, or novels, or just a diary entry which allows some of the weight to be lifted off your shoulders. I now realise the luxury of silence and how fortunate I am to have it. Watching the patronising, insulting and ignorant way that many Conservative politicians talk about those struggling with the cost of living crisis reminds me that a society 
reminds me that a society cannot progress if those in power fail to acknowledge or perceive their privilege. I walk onto the Chazen Art Gallery. I pass people in graduation gowns and people on skateboards, but sadly, no one who combines the two. The sweat on my back cools rapidly in the air-conditioned galleries, which leads to a sneezing fit, which is quite near the abstract section. Sadly, my sneezing fit is not so abstract for anyone to consider myself to be part of the art. Artists new to me today include Hollis Sigler and Micheline Thomas, who are both in the queer figuration corner. The concept of queer figuration articulates how the body can be mutable, ambiguous and rich with multiple meanings. I also make a note to seek out more by Sylvia Fine, John Wilde and Petter Coyne. I think it is magical realism that I've been looking at, but I'm never really good on terminology. But the imagery I'm looking at makes me think somewhere between Angela Carter and Guillermo del Toro. Both good things. Tonight's gig is well attended by a smart and upbeat audience. Brian Cox and I have to participate in a Brian Cox-off to find out who does Brian's voice better, him or me. The universe is a wonderful place and shining things and the shining of the, the beautiful and then we die. Anyway, I won. But thankfully I didn't have to do the rest of the lecture because I wouldn't have understood a word I was talking about. Tonight's audience questions include What are your thoughts on humanity as we know it being someone else's quantum physics? Essentially another dimension where people could see us, however we can't see them. And could we observe galaxies on the opposite side of the universe, the ones moving away from us faster than the speed of light, through the observation of a different kind of particle that can travel faster than the speed of light? And finally, do we correctly ask what time is it, or should we say when time is it? Some of Brian's relatives come back afterwards, including a cheesemaker. Sadly, we circumnavigate discussions about the nature of cheddar but we do talk about the neutrino experiments going on at Soudan Underground Laboratory, a former iron ore mine. We walk back to our hotel, carefully avoiding the elated spring breakers and potentially intoxicated graduates on skateboards. Tour manager Lee warned us that it might be quite a hairy journey because it was Friday night and people had been drinking. But of course, we're used to English streets, so it all just seemed very, very calm. Waking up in Madison, I find that Alex Jones is screaming out of my Twitter. 21 years ago, when I first came across Alex Jones, I thought he was a guy who might be quite interesting and maybe had an alternative viewpoint to much of the mainstream. I think I could have gone one of two ways then. And one of them could have led to me being a full-on conspiracy theorist living on a flat earth where the moon was a spaceship and John F. Kennedy was alive and well and working as an Elvis impersonator in an Atlantic City bar that was owned by a similarly still-living Elvis Presley. I do not think that the mainstream news narratives are necessarily trustworthy, but fortunately, nor do I think that whatever is called an alternative news source run by a middle-aged egotist who is just asking questions is trustworthy either. I didn't take too long to see that Alex Jones was a pompous, excruciatingly loud and flatulent man. One of many. Who poison the water with their effluence and jam up the networks where far more rigorous critical thinking could exist. His demonising of the parents who lost children in school shootings is so utterly repellent 
that I think anyone who believes he has any purpose whatsoever beyond selling his mineral drinks or whatever the hell they are is seriously misguided. This man is derangement for the purpose of selling his snake oil wrapped up as vitamin pills. This morning, late as ever, I realised that Jones and his ilk are the same as the revivalist preachers and TV evangelists who will fleece their viewers in the name of a fancy. Where once Jesus Christ was the cloak for their greed, now it's freedom, and sometimes mixed with Jesus Christ as well. During my US travels, I've also been disappointed to see numerous others, frequently middle-aged men for whom a sense of superiority and ersatz relevance is more important than a responsible attitude to evidence and political discourse. Today, by the way, that's Bill Maher again. Everyone now seems to be after Alex Jones's audience as he is, for the time being, teetering. But I say that. But um, at the same time, I turn on the news the other day and the adverts in between included Peter Popoff. Peter Popoff, who now sells uh, magic holy water. And uh, I think it actually has a warning, do not drink on the side of it. So it's magic water, but it may well also be toxic. Um, And uh, Peter Popoff was famously debunked on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, with James Randi doing the debunking, when The Tonight Show was the biggest show, huge show on television. And despite the fact it was found out that he was not merely fleecing his congregation, but also treating them very cruelly. And uh, we had many scabrous words for those people whose money he was taking. But he's still selling stuff, so I imagine Alex Jones will find another way of selling his things, just as every shamed evangelist normally finds a way of still doing their huckstering as well. Today is a non-day. It's just a travel day. It's the last day on our tour bus too, which has been expertly driven by a sweet man from Nashville called Jeremy. We've sometimes talked of zombie movies, and as I bid him farewell... I recommend Stakeland to him too. Have you seen Stakeland? It's very, very good. You really should. Stakeland 2, don't bother with that. But the, the first Stakeland, great soundtrack as well. And uh, also I give Jeremy some wine gums, which uh, he'd not heard of wine gums. I presumed it was some kind of joke because they contained wine and he was driving. But I explained that once I hope that the one thing that I've managed to do for Jeremy is hook him onto wine gums. Surprisingly, Brian does not nap at all as we travel along the freeway on this occasion. Instead, we watch four episodes of Severance back to back. The curtains are drawn, so I only get to occasionally see a billboard. Paul Bunyan's Lumberjack Meals. Totally 80s candy store. The Sherwood Forest RV Park replete with carved archer. I also spot a pro-life billboard, but don't catch the whole message. It might also have been an atheist anti-indoctrination billboard, as I've read in the past that Minnesota atheists sometimes borrow the iconography of anti-abortion fundamentalists for their roadside campaigns. As usual, today, watching English politics from abroad and American politics in their land has not been pleasant. The relentless hypocrisy on the right wing's morality makes the head spin. Brian also decides that it is utterly unacceptable that I have not seen Top Gun. I am rare among males of my generation in this. 
but Top Gun's release coincided with my discovery of London's art house cinemas. So while many were getting a testosterone injection through aerial balletics, I was getting my testosterone injection from watching Gabriel Byrne as Lord Byron in Ken Russell's Gothic. Voila indeed, Miss Clermont. That you should follow me a thousand miles says something about you. Last time we entered Minnesota, the streets were filled by people dressed as old women. We never found out why, despite questioning numerous locals. This time, the streets are quiet, apart from pneumatic drills digging up the roads. On arrival, I look up a few bookshops that might be in walking distance. Sadly, the wonderfully titled Eat My Words and The Bookhouse in Dinkytown are just a little too far away. But James and Mary Laurie booksellers looks close enough. These are only research trips now. I will buy no more. I'm no, honestly, I'm not going to buy any more. I'm not. I'm, we'll look. We'll find out. Sadly, it looks like Uncle Hugo's science fiction bookstore has closed down for now. I'm excited to see that Supernatural America, the paranormal in American art, is currently in the exhibition at the Art Institute. American galleries have had a habit of being between exhibitions when I come to town, but for once I arrive with two days to spare before this one shuts down. Steph, Brian and I go for a walk and look at a mixture of bridge construction and Minnesota's rich history of grinding grain. After a day of watching Severance, I'm unsure if I'm hallucinating when I notice a building that declares it's the property of Lumen. Like the tourists we are, we take numerous images of ourselves imagining that we are in the existential despair of being Lumen employees experiencing our daily severance. I won't get in a lift for the next few days. By the way, I think actually it turns out it's Lumen's, so uh, I shouldn't have got so excited in the first place. Sorry. very much for listening to this week's episode of Taking the Universe Around the World and as usual thank you very much to our producer Trent Burton and everyone who makes this show possible by supporting us via Patreon so you can just go if you don't support us via Patreon go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles see you next time this podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network